Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we welcome Paul Revel, who is co-author with Elaine Weiss of Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty, which is new from Harvard Education Press. Paul, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Stephen, a pleasure to be with you. So before we dive in and talk about this book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and maybe a bit about your background and how it is you and Elaine came to this particular book. Well, I've had a long uh, zigzagging career, Stephen, in the world of education for 40-some years now, really almost 50-some years. And uh, I've been a teacher. I've been a principal in alternative school settings. I've been a community organizer and head of a local education foundation. Along the way, I've founded, uh, oh, four or five different nonprofit organizations, some in the research area, some in the advocacy area. I've been inside and outside of government during my career, uh, mostly in the state of Massachusetts, where I've served on the State Board of Education, once appointed by a Republican governor, once by a Democratic governor. I came to teach at Harvard in 1997 and have been here off and on since with some time off for service in government. I went to be Deval Patrick's Secretary of Education uh, in 2008 and served there until 2013. I chaired the Massachusetts State Board of Education. And um, so I've had a a variety of different um, uh, kind of experiences in my career that have informed my perspective. I think that um, Elaine Weiss and I came together because Elaine had been uh, uh, heading up something called the Boulder Broader Coalition nationally, uh, which was working on a conception of education reform that went beyond simply uh, focusing in on uh, standards and assessment and accountability. I'd done a lot of work in Massachusetts' leading state. I had been a um, chief, uh, one of the chief advocates for the Massachusetts Education Reform Act of 1993, uh, served on the board then, um, chaired the um, Massachusetts Reform Review Commission, had a lot to do with education reform in in a variety of different roles in Massachusetts. And um, as you may know, we were first in the nation, comparatively speaking, in terms of our performance. But I had come to the conclusion long before the end of my term as Secretary of Education that What we were doing while necessary was insufficient to achieve our very ambitious education reform goals, not only here in Massachusetts, but nationally. I had served as head of the Pew Forum on Standards-Based School Reform, uh, and we've been having this conversation nationally about how do we improve schooling, but it became apparent that simply improving schooling wasn't going to be enough to attain our goals, such goals that are articulated in our rhetoric with phrases like no child left behind or every child a winner or every student succeeds, that the instrument of schooling was 
in and of itself, in the way in which it's currently constituted in American society, insufficient to achieve that ambitious goal of creating a meritocracy in our society. So those conclusions led me to form the Education Redesign Lab here, back here at Harvard. And through that work, I came in contact with Elaine and we decided to make common cause and sharing some of our experience and perspective on what it's going to take if America really wants to build a system designed to achieve all means all. And that will take more than just a strong school system. Strong school system is necessary, but insufficient to get the job done. So do uh, 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 organize you. So the book is 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 focused on on 12 case studies of uh, different kinds of models with different kinds of approaches from throughout the country. But what they all have in common is what you refer to as integrated student support or ISS strategies. So I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about what is ISS uh, and why do we need it? Well, when you think of schooling, schooling consumes six to six and a half hours a day in the typical American public school, uh, 180 or so days a year, which constitutes taken all together 20% of a child's waking hours between kindergarten and grade 12. Um, that's a pretty small percentage of time. It's a relatively weak intervention in the lives of children. And a great deal is happening in children's lives outside of school that either augments and complements their education in school or detracts from or distracts from, you know, what they're doing in school. So uh, our focus, our interest in the book is on um, thinking about how we build systems of support and opportunity that wrap around each and every child, their families, and the school system that make it possible for children to come to school each and every day. Integrated services, uh, integrated student supports are, are just one aspect of that. In other words, these are the kinds of supports that those of us who have privilege and affluence in our society take for granted in terms of our ability to provide them for our children dental care, health care, mental health care, stable housing, a sense of safety and security, clean water, good food, lots of recreation and enrichment opportunities, preschool, after school, summer learning, things of this nature. So by asking schools to engage in the work of integrated student services, it means connecting with their surrounding communities because this is a job that's bigger than schools themselves. And so our book documents a number of um, initiatives and programs that have been undertaken uh, all across the country by different kinds of organizations in an attempt to mitigate, for example, those issues that get in the way of young people coming to school and being ready to learn when they get there, to deal with some of the situations that cause students to chronically fail to attend school. So one of our biggest problems in schools is chronic absenteeism. And so what are we doing to deal with the issues that get in the way of young people coming to school? What is it that prevents them from coming? And what kinds of interventions do we need to get involved in? What do we need to do to make sure kids have adequate nutrition or health care or things of that nature. So our book is full of examples of different kinds of organizations who've been able to um, uh, put together programs that typically serve a limited number of students because we haven't made this systemic. And that's part of the point of the book is we've got lots of islands of success. We know how medical professionals can cooperate with school professionals uh, to deal with medical issues that arise and are identified in the school setting. What we don't have is a 
health system that makes sure every child gets the health care they need. We, um, you know, if you're a second grade teacher and you find out a child in your classroom has gone homeless over the weekend and is, sli- is sleeping in the back seat of her car, uh, you don't have the expertise or the authority, the resources, the time, the connections to really resolve that problem. Uh, but you know it's an urgent problem that's creating toxic stress in the life of the child. So you want desperately as a teacher to do something about it. And you also know that that child's never going to learn anything in your classroom while she's laboring under that toxic stress. So what we're envisioning is a system where that teacher isn't uh, expected to solve that problem on her own, but she can pick up the phone and be put immediately in touch with a housing-related advocate and agency that can move that child and her family to the top of the list and get that issue resolved so that she can, in fact, come to school and be ready to learn. So we, we have lots of examples in the book of, of um, the ways and means of addressing the needs that children uh, present when they arrive at school or that keep them from coming to school in the first place. And we think that schools and communities need to work together. This is community business. It's not just school business because schools are are way overloaded with the outsized expectations that we've placed on them in recent decades without expanding their capacity. So schools can't do it by themselves. They need communities. Uh, It's why we at the Ed Redesign Lab, for example, um, make our first point of contact in a new community a mayor, not a school superintendent, because we think this is community community business. It really does take an entire village uh, to raise children and prepare them to be successful. And, uh, and so that was, that's really what the book is about. So that, that, that sounds like something that would be an, an, an enormously large coordination problem and potentially something that's going to require more resources of all kind being concentrated in and around the school or the communities that surround it. I wonder if you might talk about Say say one or two uh, examples of this in practice that you think is particularly interesting or successful, and then maybe walk us through how they have managed to make it happen. Well, the, the uh, you're you're quite right to the uh, prelude to your question focused on on resources and coordination capacity. We operate now in silos. So schools exist in a world, in a realm of their own. Healthcare systems exist in their own realm. Criminal justice exists in another realm. And what we're suggesting is these silos don't very effectively serve families and children because uh, their walls present barriers. And there are many different silos, so there are many different barriers. However, the solution isn't as simple as simply knock down the walls, because the walls that we've created are ways of organizing complex human experience into comprehensible, manageable chunks. So that if we eliminate those walls, we've got to build new architecture, new systems of support and opportunity that make it possible for people to come together and serve the interests of families and children. So, for example, in our communities uh, that we work with in the um, Uh, Education Redesign Lab and our By All Means initiative. And this is comparable to other initiatives, the Strive Together initiative that we cite in the book as well. We convene something called the Children's Cabinet. And we ask the mayor in each community to bring together uh, a number of grassroots and grass tops leaders in the community 
who care about children and children's well-being, who have some responsibility and influence with respect to directing services and supports for those children, and come together themselves and do an assessment of what's going on in their respective communities. In other words, where are the gaps? If we have, um, for example, a community that has uh, only 30% of its youth participating in preschool and um, uh, 60% of youth want that opportunity or families want that opportunity, how do we close that gap between 30 and 60%? And the Children's Cabinet sets that as a goal and begins to develop strategy and raise resources or engage in the sort of political action and advocacy designed to bring resources to that challenge. Uh, you know, a much simpler um, example is something that we have in a lot of our communities that's emblematic of uh, the kind of work that children's cabinets or youth advocates generally have to do. On the one hand, there are symptoms of the shortcomings of our existing sis, uh, systems uh, that result, for example, in, in food deserts and food insufficiency for a lot of our students. So we have a lot of schools um, that have uh, Friday backpack programs where they um, teachers usually and volunteers in the school will come together and fill backpacks uh, with wholesome food that children can take home for themselves and their families to eat over the weekend because it's clear that they don't get that kind of nutrition otherwise. So this is a classic case of kind of treating the symptom. The symptom is urgently important. If we don't do something for that child over the weekend, they're going to come to school hungry. They're going to be hungry Monday morning and totally incapable of learning because they're starving. So we need to treat the symptom. But at the same time, the children's cabinet has got to address the, the underlying problem. Why is it that such a food desert exists? Why is it that we have children in our society, uh, the society of uh, incredible wealth that can't come to, that can't get sufficient nutrition to come to school ready to learn? And that's a function of policy and dealing with some of the social determinants of educational achievement and attainment, which are actually similar to the social determinants of of uh, health and well-being. Hearing you talk about that brings to mind uh, uh, a quote that's attributed to uh, is it, it Father Herrera, right? When I when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. But when I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. Um, I mean, what you're you're suggesting in inviting larger stakeholders in the community to have a more active and influential role in not just the schools, but in the systems that surround them and the systems that create that disadvantage and that inequality of opportunity, is that not also inescapably setting up a framework in which you could be challenging established political structures and making it, uh, uh, what, difficult to get them to participate? Is that something that, that you see happening in these kinds of efforts? Well, we see the, the efforts that we're setting up as, as complementary to what's actually going on uh, through the existing structures. But yes, it, there is a challenge. But I mean, the challenge is the challenge that exists in, in society and in schooling overall. We're, we're kind of trying to, trying to change the conversation about schooling and how we do schools to a broader conversation about how we prepare young people for success. It's become apparent, Stephen, over the past 25 years of vigorous, expensive education reform that simply optimizing schools in a society where there's gross income inequality and growing in income inequality, 
gross wealth inequality uh, is going to be insufficient to create the kind of level playing field that Horace Mann, way back in the 19th century, envisioned that schools could deliver to our society. Schools are just, on average, too weak in intervention. So we're challenging communities, and we're going out, and, and actually on our initiatives uh, here at the Ed Redesign Lab, we're, we're looking for mayors who believe that their communities cannot be successful unless their young people are successful, and the young people can't be successful simply by providing them with only a, an adequate or good, even a good quality school system. It will take more. They'll need preschool. They'll need after school. They'll need activities that are uh, enriching on weekends and especially in the summertime. They'll need health care. They'll need nutrition. They'll need a sense of safety and things of that nature. And that is more than a school system can provide. A community has to provide that. So these mayors believe that in order for our kids to be successful, uh, we need to do more than just a school system. And our community can't be successful unless our kids are successful. And I think that's part of the larger argument um, in the uh, sort of American uh, political and governance domain, which is unfortunately largely absent now in the presidential campaign as it was in the last campaign, which is how are we developing talent in our society? How are we developing human capital? And, um, uh, you know, what are we doing to ensure that our population is ready to um, compete in an international 21st century, high skill, high knowledge economy? Um, how do we get everybody the skills and knowledge that heretofore were reserved for the elite few? And that's going to take a much stronger, uh, effective system than and a broader system than the one that we have now. And that's what this, this whole effort that we're trying to describe in the book is about, is how do we broaden our approach to what needs to be done to prepare our young people to be 21st century workers in a high-skill, high-knowledge society, citizens in a complex democracy, heads of families, and lifelong learners. And uh, this is going to take a much broader effort than we've had in the past. So listening, listening to you speak and having, having read the book, one of the things that's come to my mind, I'm here in, excuse me, Man excuse me, Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, and if you look at sort of the things that, that were sort of mid-sized city, about 120,000 people, uh, the most diverse city in, in Manchester. And in fact, the area, uh, which may be damning with faint praise, but there you go. Um, but the, the, the list of, of concerns for people are, are, I think in order education, homelessness, and opioid crisis. Um, and I'm thinking, which is, wow, maybe this is, this is an opportunity for our mayor to, to have a conversation with you all at, at the Ed Redesign Lab. Um, can you talk a little, and it, and it sounds like, though, that, that, it's, it, that, that having city leadership involved in the process is important, but that is insufficient. Do you look for there already being networks of people and organizations on the ground to draw from? I mean, sort of as, as you all make your decisions about sort of which communities that you feel you can be helpful in. What else are you looking for other than just the commitment of the mayor who wants to participate in this effort? Well, the commitment of the mayor is key because we, we need a mayor to put political and, and financial capital um, to these ideas and not just talk about them, but move forward with them. But the mayor has got to have influence. He's got to have a some kind of a track record, he or she, in terms of bringing people to the table on, on persistent problems in local communities. And yes, we look for a, 
you know, we look for an open-minded superintendent because the schools are the still the hub of the wheel. That's where the kids are. That's where the families look for um, the development of their children. Uh, and then we look for a history within the community of some kind of effective collaboration between various parties in the community, community-based organizations, parent organizations, unions, you know, different branches of government, the health division of, of uh, municipal government, criminal justice division, and those kinds of things. Now, in our work at the Ed Redesign Lab, we're not looking to, to have hundreds of communities um, engaged in a direct, deep way with us. We pick nine communities across the country that are sort of laboratories for our work. And then as a university, we try to document that work, research it, analyze it, and push out to a much wider range of communities with which we're in regular contact, you know, what we're learning and how you move forward to do a better job with young people than we've been doing thus far. You know, Stephen, in, in America, we've just gone over 50% of our young people come from low-income backgrounds. A while ago, 50% of our, our young people in the in public schools, our 55 million young people in public schools are students of color. Historically, we've not done a very good job with either of those populations. And if we don't do a better job at educating them to high levels so that they can participate and become citizens and taxpayers in our society, then we're a nation at risk. Just as in 1983, there was a clarion call report that said we were a nation at risk unless we improved our system of preparing young people uh, for the uh, 21st century workforce, I would submit we're still a nation at risk and we've got to get on top of this. We've got to figure this out. And it most likely happens community to community. The federal government is not currently expressing any interest in this. Uh, state governments are distracted and have a lot of their own challenges. I see the most hopeful atmosphere uh, is existing at the local level in a kind of uh, what others have described as a new localism, where local people are best equipped to check their swords and shields at the door, put aside their differences, and come to work together on persistent social problems like these. You are listening to the New Books Network. Uh, I am Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we have been speaking today with Paul Revel, who is co-author with Elaine Weiss uh, of a book called Broad, Broader, Bolder, Better, how schools and communities help students overcome the disadvantages of poverty from Harvard Education Press. And if this conversation has piqued your interest and made you think about maybe what could be done in your own communities to, to go beyond perhaps some of the uh, traditional and you might even say tired thinking about how to improve what's going on in schools, I encourage you to pick up the book and also to go online to look at the, uh, their work there on the Education Redesign Lab. It is it is important and fascinating stuff. Uh, and I thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today and sharing a little bit about your work. Thank you, Stephen, for having me with you and for your good questions. 